to I Love That For You, the podcast that celebrates the late bloomers and trailblazers of all walks of life. I'm Kelly. And I'm Red. Red, I just read your Substack, and ah. <laughs> it is the most spooky Substack of all because it's about it's about actual real life and yes, how terrifying uh, it before is. Before anybody says like, "Oh, did she do a Halloween one?" No, absolutely, I did. <laughs> no, not. it's even more nope. scary. It's her real life. Please talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. You know this about me, Kelly, but basically, yeah. I am kind of just a nomad. I can't stay still anywhere. Nope. And that means I've done like a ton of big moves. It's not like I'm like, oh, I'll move down the street. No, no. No. I have to make it big <laughs> and complicated. I'm originally from Toronto and moved to Rhode Island with my family when I was very young. But then I went to college out of state in New York and nobody had really gone that far in my family for school. I mean, my dad came down from Canada. You know, what I'm saying is like of my generation. I was like the only one who didn't go to like the local college and things like that. So I just went out on my own and I went to college and then I ended up in Europe for six months on a program I set up for myself and (laughs) thankfully didn't have a, you know, take-in experience. I would love to see my dad go all Liam Neeson, but no, 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 no. he definitely would. And people are slightly scared of my dad. So (laughs) I would like to see it because to me, he's like a teddy bear, but I've seen him, especially when he plays hockey. I'm like, oh, "Oh, that's (laughs) the scary side. Gotcha. Okay. Um, So then I drove across the country by myself and was out on the road for like six weeks moving to California without a job lined up I just was going yeah I mean but the thing is and that's the whole thing the stance that most people take when they hear that is oh my god you're so brave you're like such a badass and I don't think it's as like oh yes, I will just go and do these things and I'm going to be brave and I'll have everything handled perfectly. And that's not the reality of it. And that's what I wrote about. Just that there's typically three phases where first it's the really exciting, oh my God, I'm doing this great adventure. This is going to be amazing. Can you believe it? And then reality hits and Mm -hmm. the logistics start happening of, okay, how am I going to make ends meet? Where am I going to land? Where am I going to put my things? And how do I sell my things if I'm not taking them? And what will I wear? All those things. I mean, because <laughs> also you have to uh, like get used to different climates and how does the metric system work? And Oh my God, that's right. <laughs> someone's going to tell me it's going to be like 12 degrees outside and I have no idea what that is. <laughs> Because here in the U.S., that's freezing. That's below freezing. There, no. So I have no idea. And so all those things kind of come to a head. And then you just kind of... too. Sorry to say, but your your SIM number? What is it? Yeah. So it's a SIN. um, Basically, like how we would say social. It's my social up there. It's been over 100 days. And I still do not have my number, which honestly, it should just be confirming what it is. I just don't have the document. But for a process that is said to be 15 to 20 days, uh, it's now been over 100 days and I still haven't gotten the confirmation of what my number is, oh which my holds gosh. up my student loans and holds up the job searching and holds Ugh. up everything else because I can't move forward without that number. And, you know, school is asking for payment. And it's the spooky thing of oh, all. It's the spookiest <laughs> of all and as much as we love talking about this kind of stuff <laughs> it's, you're living a real life horror movie red this is so i know i but, would freak out oh i totally have been let's not okay. kid ourselves i'm not like <laughs> 
and everything is calm and I am no I am absolutely tearing my oh. hair out poor caboose is just like she is stressed beyond belief scream queening um, like our, yeah. our girl Faye <laughs> yeah exactly oh, and red. I mean I also had like I've still been seeing this guy and oh, I haven't yeah, seen him in a couple of weeks because he got COVID oh, no. somehow I did not huh. um, I know it must have well he goes and does other things so he must have got it like shortly thereafter the last time I saw him so haven't seen him for a little bit although we've been talking and that's also another thing because again I don't know where that lies I don't know what the future is of that because I refuse to do a long distance relationship because I need to focus on school and I need to focus on myself and I've done long distance relationships in the past and I put the other person first and that was not healthy for a big change like this you shouldn't be putting all your self-worth and your plans and everything on another person you should be focusing on what your needs are and figuring that out because yeah, I'm figuring out a lot of stuff. Are you putting distance? Are you both at an agreement? Or is one of you getting a tat? We're both just having a lot of fun with this. And he's mentioned maybe coming up to Toronto. Oh, shit. I know. Oh, um, shit. And... That's legit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> not that's permanently, a... just for a okay. visit. But I just mean, that's a not visit. a bad reason. And huh. I think regardless of how things go, I would love to stay friends with him. Because right. I've gotten to really enjoy talking to him and things like that. But right now I do feel like I put up a little bit more of a wall because I don't feel I, I don't want to get hurt in this and I don't want to hurt him. But I want to enjoy this time and I like getting to know him. But I'm doing a huge change in my life. And he's been asking me about it and like what went into the decision making. And he's very respectful of it. So it's not like he's like, well, that's dumb. You should just stay here and fuck me. And it's like, no, like <laughs> he's not that kind of person, thankfully. Good. So, but that's almost what makes it harder. <laughs> oh, yeah. You want him, when you he's actually want him to a be decent a person. Yeah, yeah. Right. How dare if he's he a be dick, a then you're like, sayonara. Thanks yeah. for the sex. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's even worse. You're right. So that that's yeah. why I'm worried about you getting attached. But I guess you know what you're doing. You, you've, you've oh, know of course I don't. Is. Oh, of course is, you don't. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And that was the doing. whole point of my article was that I know. you're not going to know how things are going to go because life is not this perfect map of how everything's going to go, which is probably the scariest thing to finally come to terms with. The fact that uh, yeah. as many plans as we make, it's not going to go according to plan because nope. as much as you plan for the unexpected, guess what? It's <laughs> unexpected. You can't plan for everything. <laughs> it's life's what's, what happens when you make other plans, Red, as we've said many times. Exactly. It is a, so it's the a thing shit show. Is, I'm doing a quick shout out to my spin instructor, Tori, which I know makes me sound like a very basic white girl, which I am. But, no, but I love it. She always says in the middle of the class, she's like, all right, are we ready for this? Well, we're going anyways. And <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so right. Funny. And it's but that's how life is. It's just you're not going to be 100 percent ready, because if you keep waiting until you are you're never going to do the thing you're talking about. You have to just go and do it because you're going to mess up if you are expecting everything to go incredibly perfect the first time you're trying something new. I mean, sometimes that works. Sometimes when you're trying a recipe, great, it works out for you. But sometimes right. there's no written instructions on how to do something or it's in the metric system and you don't know how to do that conversion. <laughs> I so can't wait. Things, 
will not go according to plan. <laughs> for all of your metric conversion issues. I can't oh, wait. it's going to be bad. I just, I can't wait. oh, I'm just like, and to find certain ingredients. And I know things are spelled differently because they do the British spelling of oh, things. Right. And I know I'm going to say, I already almost got arrested in New York for asking for a bubbler. Turns out that? that's a bong. It's a bong in New York, it's but it's bong. a water fountain in Rhode Island. So I was trying to get Oh, I didn't water. know that. That's a yeah. specific thing. Bubbler. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huh. So a bubbler or a bubbla if you're from Rhode Yeah. But if you say, <laughs> if you enunciate, it's a bubbler. And if you're looking for a bubbler and ask the public safety officer in New York where the bubbler is because you're thirsty, they're going to be very concerned and confused. <laughs> I can't wait, though. This is going to make for some good Substack content, I will say, well, and podcast yes. content. <laughs> exactly. But that's the thing. As scary as this all is, and as much right. as the reality of the whole situation is, I'm just going to do it and see Ugh. what happens. And it's terrifying, but it's also, that's part of the adventure. And I don't think that, it, oh God, who, I forget who says it all the time. It's like a either a comic book or just been so referenced. Being brave isn't about doing things when you have all the courage. It's doing things even when you're afraid. I'm terrified. And this is going to be a very scary endeavor. And I know I'm going to freak out. And you guys all get to hear all about it as I <laughs> <laughs> probably am crying from my Airbnb Aww, to Kelly and friend. wondering what I'm doing and and attempting all these makeup looks and learning and i'll be up there you can stuff. you can try them on me we'll do like a if we ever Please figure come. out a video you can we can do like a, a makeup thing like <laughs> get oh, ready with yeah me. let's do some tutorials <laughs> we'll like, do some tutorials i'll be your canvas <laughs> yeah oh my god that'll this be, would be fun. so fun i'm excited well you do have you. to come visit me you know that. of course i will absolutely i love toronto even though like we've said it's 10 years behind so right now it's 2013 up there <laughs> uh -huh. but hockey i'm jealous oh. That's yeah, I mean, let's religion. go to a game. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, when they play like, the Sabres, I'll come. I was about to say, will you will you be upset to go to a Leafs game? I mean, I'll just be incognito. I'll pretend. But <laughs> I'm really, of course, the Sabres are my home team. I will always I, have yeah. a special place in my heart for the for the Leafs. But uh, oh, yeah, I'm definitely much more now of a Bruins go. girl, which is, oh, no, I... Please, if you get caught, just throw me under and be okay, like, she's a Bruins fan. Like, Yeah, even her. worse. That's even worse. <laughs> yeah. That's a bigger no. transgression. <laughs> I know. It still hurts my dad whenever I say it. He's just oh. so hurt. <laughs> well, but we're talking about the spooky season yes. and all those sort of things. So besides the scariness of reality and right. life. Which we already know I'm a, in deep in that right now. But uh, <laughs> I, did a, I did a really cool thing. I did... Um, a haunted car wash the other day, Red. Have you heard of a haunted car wash before? Um, no, I have not. And so I'm just over here like, what? Did, did your car actually come out cleaner? It, it, it did. Or does it like, is it covered it, in blood? And then it's yeah, like body right? parts. Well, and... they did have fun like soap go on it. But no, there's like ghouls and goblins like leading up to the car wash that are like, if you leave your door open, they'll come in. They'll actually come in the car. So we made sure I'm to sorry, lock it. Why are you leaving your car door open I during know. a car wash? These people are idiots. Like, and like we had bandit with us. So we made sure to lock it like they were <laughs> fucking with it fucking with the door trying to get in how like, did bandit we... handle that he was grumpy we should have probably left him at home 
But it was so cool. And then, like, there were actually people inside the car wash getting, like, water tortured. <laughs> it's like, they better get oh a, like, God. boost in pay. Because there's people with masks inside the car wash as you're getting a car wash. That was crazy. It was the craziest shit. It's in Lakewood, California. If you guys want to go, check it out. And there's one in Anaheim, I guess. It was so fun. And then the haunted hayride at Griffith Park. And I must say, it's usually pretty lame. But this year, they stepped it up, Red. Like, have you been to the one in Griffith Park before? No, not Griffith Park. I mean, I've been on plenty of haunted hay rides and, and they're usually haunted lame, mazes right? and houses and things like that. But the haunted hay rides are typically very, you know, low key, just not. Yeah, right. This one was pretty good. They stepped it up from last year. I genuinely got scared. They had like cool on a wire flying through the sky with a thing on a string that they threw at you and then you think you're going to get hit and then it comes back like a yo-yo. So that was really cool. They had like a TNT thing where they like blew up the area around you and it was genuinely scary. Like I got scared. And then their mazes were pretty on point this year. I have to say if there's still time if you're listening to this and you're in LA you should get over to the Haunted Hayride. It's pretty good this year yeah I am why we put, like the link on our social yeah so that we're people giving them free promo that. red we need to get ads and you know what speaking <laughs> of that speaking of that listeners do us a favor please hit those five stars and hit that subscribe button and write a one sentence review anything you can do helps that's your payment tell a friend make it your story whatever you got to do help us out we put this out. We put a lot of time into it. Just give us a little something back, please. We would love. Yeah, it's to been hear a little you. scary. How yes. like <laughs> it, it kind of feels like we're just kind of shouting into the void sometimes. I mean, granted, we're bit. shouting to each other, so at least yes. we know there's so someone. At least we have each other. At least we have but, each other, Red. Yeah, that's the thing. I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of work that podcasters do. And I mean, I yeah. think we also didn't know. I mean, we we no. knew there was quite a bit of work, but. It's even exceeded what we expected. Oh, it's so, been a lot. So please just yeah, give us a little boost. Yeah, on top of everything else in our lives going on. <laughs> talk about spooky season. Just Seriously? everything. The reality of life hitting. Well, this is like the week before Halloween. So you know what? Yeah. I have a feeling like we're going to have a good time. Actual we Halloween. Are. And then, yeah. And as this comes out, tomorrow I'll be leaving for a trip with my dad to Arches National Park. So that could be a spooky nightmare in itself. But <laughs> now it'll be well, fun. You and your dad travel so well together. We I mean, do. We've done a bunch of things. We both so. need like a break and, and just, I don't know, Arches is very uh, peaceful and I've always wanted to see it. So we're going to go to that. But then we found out that there's like an ultra marathon, a marathon, a half marathon, like all that weekend. So we're like, wait, should we like band at the course? <laughs> Of course there would be. Is your dad doing like all of them? I know he probably would if he could, but he he said, I just want a medal. Like I'm like, I'll bandit it for free. (laughs) But he wants like the medal. But yeah, so that's where I'll be next week. So maybe I'll do a little podcast with them, Red. We'll 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 see how that goes. Like a little Tuesday tea with my dad. He's a fascinating guy. But you know who else is fascinating, Red? Segway lady. Thank you, thank you. Smooth transition. Right? So today's person, the audience already knows by the title of the episode, but Red here does not know yet. No, I have no idea who we're doing. Not at all. And I'll say that I really try to avoid doing this, like, 
late blooming trailblazer if ever there were one because they're extremely obvious but I don't think anyone's going to protest my highlighting them because they are just that legendary and game changing to the horror genre the more I dug into this person the more I learned just how little I knew about them and like their backstory so Red this week we are talking the late great writer actor, editor, producer, and most famously legendary horror movie director, Wes Craven. Wow. Yes. You know what? This is going to be really good because I actually don't know much about Wes Craven at all as a person. I didn't either. And he's fascinating. And it's funny. He's also known as the guru of gore, the master of horror, and the sultan of shock, which is very similar to our friend Tom Savini. They just love their nicknames, Red. All on these I mean, I love that they're both sultans but just different right? s words sultans and then... of shock and of splatter but i was like we have to like it's obvious but come on he's fascinating yeah, this is great i'm so excited because again yeah. i don't really know yeah i, I didn't either learn about him he wasn't as obvious as i thought i was trying to oh. guess who it was gonna be oh really you didn't think i thought you were I gonna go was... hitchcock oh okay yeah and it's funny well, I did... next halloween <laughs> next halloween it's funny i did do that the other day we went to a drive-in and finally saw psycho i had never seen psycho before what? So I know. So that was I, so cool. I'm shocked because that's yeah. such a good classic. And I mean, the first time I watched it, I remember the first half being like, oh, this isn't scary at all. Right, right. But the second half. Off the oh, rails. I did not realize, again, this was like a while ago that I saw this movie. I was pretty young, too. But, oh, you were young so, when you saw it? That is not the movie to see when you're young. I definitely was like a teenager. And okay. so okay. not like young, young, but okay, I was, I was definitely like say. a teenager watching it. And I was like, oh, oh no. Oh, this is not right. And this no. was also during the eras when we were driving up to Toronto and staying at hotels. Um, no, yeah. no, 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 um, no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, Hitchcock would have been great next year, but Wes Craven. And guess what? Yeah. Red, the first movie he saw wasn't until he was a senior in college. What? It was To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962. So, the horror. No, I'm kidding. I'm I kidding. know. But like, so here's why that was. So we'll rewind. So he was born August 2nd, 1939 in Cleveland. And he grew up in a super strict, repressed Baptist household where movies were considered sinful. So the really? only movies he was allowed to see growing up were Disney movies. So he Still terrifying. Never, exactly. The horror. Yeah. So really only like novels and stories were his early influences because he couldn't even watch movies because he grew up in such a broken home. His parents fought constantly. They divorced. He would hide in the corner and observe. And that little detail will come back later in his direction style. I will say, but his dad died early and was buried on his fourth birthday. On the birthday? Yep, on Wes's fourth birthday. That's but awful. He, his dad had left the family even before that. So very oh, broken home. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. So his mom moved him and his older brother around. Yeah, what a traumatic childhood he had. No so, kidding. I know. It's poor guy. So, But I mean, well, as a child, to also lose your father, even if you don't have a close relationship with them, and then for the funeral or like just for yeah. that to be held on the birthday, that's a really sad experience. And- yeah. Very, you know, that's going to be a pivotal moment moment in someone's life like developmentally big time and it would lead to his directing style later on which i'll touch on from this broken childhood and the themes that he would include in his movies but again he didn't have any interest in film because he didn't see any he wasn't allowed to so he went on to earn a degree in psychology from a christian college
college, Wheaton College in Illinois in 1963. And then he went on to get his master's degree in philosophy and writing from John Hopkins. So movies and horror were not anywhere in the picture for him, like, at all. So here he is in 64, 65. He went on to teach English at Westminster College in Pennsylvania And then he was a humanities professor at Clarkson College in Potsdam. So he taught humanities and English for five years throughout the late 60s. He's he's doing just teaching. So you would never, ever put that together. Like, I had no no idea. I would have thought he was, like, out of the womb and directing. No, he's he's latent to his life You hear, like, the stories of, like, Tom Savini and things like that where very early on there was this draw to it. Fucking around with makeup. Yeah. Right. Whereas this is like, it's, it, you, I mean, if you study literature, you could definitely find like horror elements depending on the type of, you know, readings right. that you're doing. But yeah, no. So he, he was teaching for years. And then I will say during this time, though, he did start to finally see like every art film in the late 60s and 70s, European and American. And he didn't gravitate towards horror. Like there was a lot of violence, though, in the movies that he was seeing with the Vietnam War in the background. And around this time, he, kind of took such an interest in all the film that he finally was seeing that he became an advisor for his students film club and he ran around with a 16 millimeter making a mission impossible ripoff for like $300 and he had no idea what he was doing they had no idea what they were doing but he really enjoyed it and much to his department chair's chagrin his department chair was like yo you're not taking shit seriously you're not working on your PhD you're not publishing any papers and Wes was like yeah you're right I quit <laughs> Because wow. a, lo- a love of film had been ignited. Yeah. You know? So what he did was something sort of similar to you, Red. He went to New York to learn how to do it. And he didn't have a plan. He didn't have a job. He just quit. And he lived off of three months of pay. But he didn't have a job. And guess what? He didn't get a job. So he had to actually come back to his wife and kids hat in hand sans job. And the college wouldn't take him back. So now he's SOL. Oh. So he had to go get a job teaching English at a high school in Madrid. New York. So wait, yeah. he was married and had kids and he left them and then came yeah. back? Yeah. Yep. He was like, I'm going to go take this time to, you know, go to New York, learn how to do it. Did yeah, they support he... him in this? Di- was it like a discussion or it was just like a bye, different time? Come back? Different time. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't, obviously it didn't work out that marriage. He had many marriages. I think he had ended up having three. So this one didn't work out, but they supported him and I, I guess he supported them. But yeah, he, he went to try and make it and learn how to do film, but he couldn't find a job. So he had to go back and teach English in high school. To his credit, he wanted to give it one more shot in New York. So it ended up being two years. He learned how to edit. He drove a cab. And then he finally got a job syncing up dailies on a small feature produced by this what would be a famous whore producer, Sean Cunningham. And the two became best friends and would go on to collaborate a ton. But I also want to state that also during this time, this was a little known fact. I had no idea. Craven (coughs) left the academic world for the more lucrative role of porn film director, Red. Okay. (laughs) And in this documentary, Inside Deep Throat, he says that on camera, he made many hardcore X-rated films under pseudonyms. And while his role in Deep Throat is undisclosed that's most of what his early work was involving writing film editing or both so 
He's doing porn, driving a cab, and then he finally ends up getting this job working on dailies with Sean Cunningham. So here is where things take off. So him and Sean Cunningham will become best friends and collaborate a ton. So Mm -hmm. Sean Cunningham had a directive from a theater chain in Boston to make something really scary as a second bill to the headliner for this theater chain, very low budget. So Sean's like, hey, you want to like, write a movie and Craven was like okay sure I guess (laughs) so uh, he he wrote his first movie ever in two days read he wrote the script in two days and it's called Last House on the Left and this (gasps) is in yes oh you're familiar two days yeah two days and it was inspired by that 1960 Ingmar Bergman thriller Virgin Spring and it was I still can't bring myself to see it because no oh boy it oh I know about rough. it but uh, I have not seen it, it and it is rough. too yep. he had never directed before Red this is his first thing ever he had never written a script before but he would stage various scenes and do it like a documentary and there's this very brutal rape and murder in the woods scene mm-hmm. and there was he did it in one long take but then do it three times in three angles. Very powerful stuff, but I can only imagine how traumatic that was for the actors, you know, to to do that. It's I can't. That's why I can't watch it. It's apparently extremely brutal, but he had no idea what coverage was. He didn't know anything. He he allowed for improv. And this is where his earlier experience with the, the broken childhood home where parents would be fighting. He would always go about directing things like he was directing if he were a five year old in a room. Where would he stand mm. to see it? Very interesting. So that, that oh, ties back to the perspective to his, of that. Yeah. So it's like that's a lot of her, the handheld stuff, like no dolly, no crane. Just what would a five-year-old, how would they view this and how would they interact in the world? And that came mm-hmm. from him hiding in the corner. So he did that for this film. And man, he, <laughs> this film explored the breakdown of family structure. And, and he thinks good horror talks about primal fears and things people do to each other. And it's a lot about this film is about protecting family and the lengths that parents will go to. Oh, yeah. And the breakdown of family structure, too. It's a dark film. Very I'm, dark film. That's why I'm so shocked he did that in in two days like he's like well top of mind yeah um, like very top of mind and it changed his life but people were so offended and some people had heart attacks in the movie and oof. people wouldn't leave their kids alone with him he was disbarred from the company of regular people they the film was very violent and repugnant and so yikes and for those who don't know the movie's about two teens who were raped and murdered 100 feet from their home and the parents who go on a rampage to get revenge which is a yeah. Very unfortunately, I mean, granted, we didn't know back then how rampant such violence was actually happening. Because what era are we in again? We're in the the... early 70s here. Yeah. I mean, we're coming into like some key times of serial killers and things like that. Very prolific ones suddenly being caught. And you think about not only, unfortunately, we definitely glamorize the serial killers themselves, which is honestly very offensive to a lot of the family members and things like that but that's who we should be focusing on not only the victims but their families who then have to live with that knowledge and you know try and keep that memory alive and so I can imagine family like as much as it's a shocking film to see people who have experienced things like this 
they see something like this and they're like, yeah, the lengths I would go for knowing right. if something like that happened. And Absolutely. I mean, granted, this takes it in a very dark and very, very dark, mm-hmm, very, messed like, up uh, situation. But yes, the breakdown of the family that can happen in situations like that. So there is, like we talked about earlier, the reality of life yeah. coming in, but just looking at it through a horror lens. This and is why so, I like, have not seen it. <laughs> yeah, I will not see it. But after that negative experience on Last House, Craven, he wanted to just move out of that horror genre. Like he never was seeking it out. It was just, let's write really? something low budget. Yeah, oh, this is funny. I, I wish there was someone like just right? fly on the wall being like, oh, he has no idea. <laughs> yeah, no. Isn't that crazy though? Like I thought that this was like in his DNA, but he wanted to get out. So he tried to like write non-horror films with his partner Sean Cunningham but none Mm -hmm. of them he tried to write comedies and biopics or whatever none of them attracted any financial backing so he's like well fuck like he's going broke again so it's now four or five years after Last House on the Left so we're in like 76 77 and so based on the advice from a friend about the ease of filming in the Nevada desert Craven began to write a new horror film Based on that locale and that resulting film was The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Went super lighthearted again. Yeah, (laughs) very lighthearted. And his films in general, like, they're very characterized by the breakdown of family. And he said families in denial are a common thread throughout his movies. The family is the best microcosm to work with. It's very much where most of our strong emotions or gut feelings come from. I grew Mm. up in a white working class family that was very religious. There was an enormous amount of secrecy in the general commerce of our getting along. If there was an argument, it was immediately denied. There was a feeling it was repressed. I began to see that as a nation, we were doing the same things. So these were vague themes in his early films, but really the hills have eyes cemented him, whether he liked it or not, as a film director and it soon became clear to him that he wasn't going to do anything else unless it was scary (laughs) well because the thing is too like he's writing these as well it's not just that he's like it'd be one thing if he was solely the director but he's writing these topics and it seems like the ones that are the most difficult the ones that are I mean, he's writing about families. Granted, there's all these other situations happening around it. Um, Obviously, Hills Have Eyes have, uh, for those that don't know, it's about like getting stuck. And then there's, I guess, in a way, a separate family with their own issues who come and attack them. (laughs) Yeah. Um. For those who don't know, the film actually follows the Carter family. And it's a suburban family that's targeted by a family of cannibal savages after becoming stranded in the Nevada desert. And did you know it was based on a true story? Yes, I have heard that before. Which is crazy. Uh, It's based on the legend of Sonny Bean, who's mm -hmm. believed to be the head of a wild Scottish clan that murdered and cannibalized numerous people during the 16th century. I had no idea I read. Like, I avoid this genre or these scary movies as much as I can. I had no clue. That's terrifying. Well, you know me. I'm the true crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. It's a terrifying thing to draw inspiration from obviously but but that's the thing like he's such a good writer able to who's able to find like all these nuances to what the true horror is is just like trying to not only survive but the family dynamics and how that affects like the family the impact something like that has it's not just like the typical slasher where all of a sudden you're like all right well, we're just going to move on from here. A lot of the times the people in his film deal with actual trauma and how 
to yep. survive that and based on that's his real life. terrifying it's based on his real life like, yeah he draws inspiration from which is terrifying but cemented him in his career so i guess out of trauma comes that's where the best art comes from question mark <laughs> <laughs> so i'll take it and he won a critics award for this film may i add so it, it definitely cemented him whether he liked it or not as a horror director but our boy wes he had two movies after that that did not do so well in 81 and 82 and he once again read fell on very hard times which we can relate to he's he's in a he's in a peak and then he's in a valley peak in a valley and he did do the hills Sounds of eyes familiar. yeah very <laughs> familiar he did the hills of eyes too which got him through a little bit but he had to borrow some money to pay his taxes so he cut trailers and edited where and when he could and now we're in the early 80s but then read all hell breaks loose in a good way when you know what's coming a script he had written three years ago we're now in the mid 80s and he had been trying to get it financed the entire time and it finally got made red and of course i'm talking about a little 84 film called nightmare on elm street Oh my god, oh insert boy. the theme music. I'm definitely oh going to. Oh my god. Like, I could is... do a whole podcast on this. <laughs> I mean... It's uh... fascinating. I had no idea all these facts. What do you know about it? Do you know any like facts about the movie or oh. anything? Like, What do you know? I mean, I, mean, I know you know the plot, well, but all, like, tell me your the audience, obviously. Yes. <laughs> this Nightmare on Elm Street was a film that Wes Craven did, uh, where basically it tells... It's a bit of a slasher film where it follows a group of teenagers who are slowly being picked off one by one by a killer with a messed up face and has yes. uh, blades for his hands and he is killing them in their sleep. Uh, not killing them in their sleep like he's coming while they're sleeping. No, he's reaching them in their dreams and killing yep. them while in their dream, which then kills them in reality. And, and they are gruesome but creative deaths. Uh, it's one yep. of our earliest appearances of Mr. Johnny Depp. Uh, yep. Spoiler, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. he does not make it to the end of the film. No, he does not. Uh, <laughs> but his death in that is incredible because um, yes. he gets pulled into a bed and then blood the ceiling, shoots out. Because right? like, they use practical effects. So I think the they way did. that they may have shot it was that upside it was actually down. upside down. Yep. Yep. Freddie, though, became a cultural icon just because, icon. and again, this is top of dome. So I'm sorry. Yeah, this is just top of dome. Like the facts <laughs> behind it. And you know, Robert England was a Shakespearean actor. Right. And he's <laughs> yeah. a, an incredible actor, but also has a fantastic sense of humor. But he became so iconic in this role i don't think they could really ever do a remake without him he's so no. synonymous with the character unlike Absolutely. others like mike myers and jason where they have masks on so you can yeah. replace them but he is so that character because he also was the one that there would be a lot of nightmare on elm streets it's a it's a whole franchise where yes. he starts cracking jokes and he has these witty comebacks <laughs> and these yeah. lines. Oh, probably one of the earliest times where I don't think we ever had a villain say, like, yeah. Welcome to prime time, bitch. Or pick a pet <laughs> for the rugrat, bitch. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. He's just got so many good one-liners. Yeah, uh, and I'm, I'm I do believe... Yeah. Well, the whole thing, too, of that you were saying 
of Wes Craven allowing people to improv, I do believe the bitch line was one of Robert England's doing. Yeah, uh, yeah I think he was improving that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and, and these are just top of mind a- that you know all this. <laughs> did you know this was based on a real story? He loved real stories because in the mm-hmm. 80s, there was an epidemic of people dying in their sleep during nightmares, and they were mostly immigrants from Cambodia. And the condition became known as Asian death syndrome. So when he read that story in the No, I didn't know that part of it. Oh, that's so sad. That's and that's where he got the idea, which is very sad. But then Freddy Krueger was based on a guy in Cleveland who dressed kind of like Freddy. And the red and green was also based on a scientific article about how red and green stripes are the most clashing colors to the human retina. So that's why he picked the red and green. But there was a guy in Cleveland. Christmas is going to look different this year. Yeah, right? It's Christmas, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And Freddie was named after the Cravens High School bully, Freddie Krueger. But but it was actually based on a drunk that went down the sidewalk in his Cleveland home. And one night, this drunk spotted Wes Craven in the window and he stopped and looked at him with those like Freddie eyes and terrified him. And so Wes runs away and then he comes back. The guy's still there. And so this drunk, now he's trying to get in the house. Wes has this older brother, chases him away with a baseball bat. But that's where Freddie came from, was this drunk in Cleveland that terrorized Wes. Yeah, so crazy. And so, of course, Robert Englund. Wes didn't want a scrappy, skinny guy for the role of Freddie, I guess. He wanted like a big lumbering guy. But oh, we haven't when, seen that before. Uh, right? But when he, <laughs> he just nailed that audition and it really, I can't imagine it without him. Like, could you no, imagine a fat Freddie, a fat, lumbering, tall well, Freddie? Not even fat, but just like, yeah. even if it was just muscular, there's something about Robert England's performance and the wiriness of like the way yeah. he kind of carries himself. It, yep. it has a very nightmarish like dream quality to it where you could totally see a figure like I don't have a lot of nightmares of you know big lumbering guys chasing after me I mean that sounds more like a dream um but (laughs) but what I mean is like where there's the character who can kind of blend in in a way like hide in the shadow and like kind of twist their way through things that to me is way scarier than the obvious like man standing there chasing you down freddie can turn into literally the things of nightmares and contort himself in such a way and i think having that physicality lends itself more to the character so sorry i know just i know and i feel like i would laugh more at like the big numbering dream person rather than the kind of he almost has like a poltergeist kind of energy to him where he's just like absolutely chaotic and you don't know how he's going to. Because there's a lot of imaginative ways that he kills these like kids yeah. in the movies and things like that. It's not as simple as, oh, I'm just going to stab you. It's, oh, there's so many elaborate deaths throughout the franchise that have happened and they're gruesome. Yeah, absolutely. And- Would you say it's a bit of a nightmare? 
<laughs> a little bit of a nightmare, but I just have to give him credit though, Robert England, because the, the the makeup took three and a half hours to finish each day, and he's he's wearing this makeup twelve to fifteen hours a day, and which that's is rough. Just rough. But also, what I would give to just have Robert I know that's England gonna be in you, Red. Chair for three that's hours and just talking to him. Oh, the dream! I wish. <laughs> I saw him at, uh, where was it? The Roxy or something? I don't know. Something. They did like a table read of Nightmare oh on Elm God. Street. And he was there and I was I was starstruck. It was, he is a delight and he really yeah. gave it his all. And But they had to slow down his voice to make it more scary in the really? film. But yeah, they had to do some slowdown effect to make it as terrifying, but still. The glove was so heavy that it made his shoulder droop, which became part of Freddy's look but that was not intentional and the hero glove would actually cut things and like every time someone put on the glove they injured themselves because it was so sharp that you if you closed your fist the blade cut your arm (laughs) I know isn't that crazy it's fascinating there's so many to rethink that costume design yeah just a little (laughs) bit but uh there's so many things I'll put this in the show notes these fun facts but did you know originally that Charlie Sheen was supposed to be Johnny Depp. <laughs> but they couldn't afford his 3000 a week fee. So that's why. Right, because this is definitely more of the Charlie Sheen than because yep. Johnny Depp, I mean, now, oh, what a role reversal. Um, yep. To get Johnny to do that, yep. I can't even imagine the cost of that versus getting yeah. Charlie. But uh, the movie obviously did so well. It made $24 million, which back then, I mean, what is that now? It's a lot. It really just catapulted him to another strata. So as we learned, he has a lot of ups and downs and Mm -hmm. he actually had a really rough time after this success. His marriage fell apart. He called it a sham, (laughs) which is fun. Fun word to use. He was supposed to to use, but not with a marriage. (laughs) Not with a marriage. He was supposed to direct Beetlejuice and I think Superman 4, but he was dropped from both. Oh, he did some films in the mid 80s that were not well received. He was sued for thirty million for copyright on Nightmare on Elm Street for some reason, really, yeah, but it never went through because that was bullshit. But yeah, so lots of ups and downs, tons of ups wow. and downs. Oh, and then there was Vampire in Brooklyn with Eddie Murphy, which oh was my very God. <laughs> uneven horror and comedy. <laughs> Um, definitely leans more comedy. Like, even though, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, Eddie Murphy, but like that he was not trying to be funny. And that was. Oh, so you've oh. seen I've Oh, I've, I've seen, seen it. This. Oh, no. Is it really bad? Yeah. It's, oh, it's, no. it's surprisingly well made, but it's the, the whole thing itself is just, yeah, it's, it's. <laughs> That would be a whole other podcast talking about it because I saw it ages ago and I just remember thinking it was a comedy and then realizing it wasn't because that was the expectation I had. And that also comes down to casting because not that there's anything wrong with Eddie Murphy's ability to act. He is a good actor, but this was also him very much in his comedy heyday. So I think a lot of people, anytime you associate him to in that time period, any film, you're expecting a comedic performance. And then the, the whole concept was very, very over the top and very preposterous that you started thinking it was a comedy and then it had this weird in between where it's like, is this a comedy or not? So <laughs> now I need to watch this. Oh yeah. Now I I think, see oh my this. God. And Angela Bassett, she's the other main lead in it. She's I love a, Angela she's Bassett. She's a 
incredible actress. So to have the two of them, you think it could work, but... It did not. (laughs) It did not. But one that did sort of work the year before this was Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That was the return of Freddy. They had killed Freddy in the last film, and they wanted Wes to come back to bring him back. And I want to see this. It sounds very meta, very behind-the-scenes Hollywood. I think I did see it, actually, but I want to see it again. It's very, like, kind of making fun of itself, very Hollywood, very inside baseball. And it was a success, not a hit, but a success. And he got a lot off his chest, uh, Wes. Like, he, mm-hmm. he makes appearances in all of his films, by the way. So he was he was in this one as well. So that one was pretty good. But again, not a lot of not a lot of success after, you know, Nightmare in 84. But it wasn't really until 1996 when a movie called Scream fell into his lap and things picked up again. But guess what? This guy passed on it three times before finally agreeing to do it. He thought it was too violent and he did not want to go back to the beginning. Like when, you know, he did Last House on the Left. He didn't want to do that again. He thought it was very, very violent. And but a lot of teens and like younger, you know, folks around him were like, you've gotten soft. (laughs) You're getting soft, Wes. Don't be a wimp. Do it. And his assistant actually was the one, Julie Pleck, who's a big name now in the industry, was the one who got him to do it. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. He wasn't going to do it. Again, it sounds like he had a complicated relationship with his success because it's he like really he didn't did. want to be this horror movie person, but like he really didn't. It kind of comes down to sometimes we find things that we're good at, but not not naturally what we're like gravitating towards. To do. <laughs> exactly, and he and before we get to what he did that was finally not horror, uh, just some fun facts about Scream though was. The inspo for the screenplay came to the writer Kevin Williamson when he was watching a documentary on the serial killer Danny Harold Rowling, who killed five students after sneaking into their apartment. And Mm. later that night, Williamson found an open window in his house that he was certain he had shut before. So he spent the rest of the night searching the house, terrified, with like a knife in his hand, talking to a friend on the phone. So he wrote the first draft and a treatment for two sequels in three days. Jesus. I mean, that that blood pumping night will get you going, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, you're definitely not going to sleep after that, but I don't think I've ever written something that quickly I and mean, all I, that in no that i wish i could do that shit i mean do i need like a, a serial killer a to inspire me yeah <laughs> <laughs> i have to be chased by a serial killer so that was crazy so and then like i had said he had passed on it but so he, he eventually signed on because of drew barrymore hilarious because yeah. you know the movie the big plot twist for people seeing it for the first time is the fact that, spoiler alert, people, Drew Barrymore does not live past the opening No, and funny enough, (laughs) she was supposed to play the part of Sydney, the lead character, Mm -hmm. originally, but she played Casey instead. And so, you know, he kind of took influence. Wes here took influence from Hitchcock with Janet Leigh and Psycho and killed her in, you know, 15 minutes. Which is crazy. 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 I mean, Drew Barrymore is such a big name. I mean, granted, you have a lot of people from the franchise now who also have become incredibly well known. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say Courtney Cox. Um, granted, she yeah. was more because of Friends. Right. But 
She had Still. to fight to get in this, by the way. Like they, yeah. she wanted to play the bitch. Finally, they wouldn't, they weren't gonna, you know. She had to fight really hard for this role. She wanted to play a bitch. So. Oh, she did so well. She did so, so well. well. <laughs> so well. But the mask they originally weren't gonna use because it was too silly. But I can't imagine it without it. Like that mask is iconic, you know. And I guess the voice of Ghostface was was provided by Roger Jackson, who did the voices for the Powerpuff Girls, Red. Did you know this? Wait, what? The Powerpuff Girls. I watched that show. Wait, the same guy who's like, sugar, spice, and everything. it's him. Oh my God. I was like, holy shit, that's amazing. Do you girls like watching scary movies? It was so cool. And the voice, the original plan was to have his voice as a placeholder. But Craven just stuck with them because it was just, he described his voice as an intelligent evil. So, and he didn't physically play Ghostface. That was. Well, no, of course yeah, not. Yeah, stuntman Dane Farewell. But yeah, that was his voice, which is so fun. It's such a little wow, nice nugget. I didn't that know crazy? that. Yeah. That was so fun. So yeah, I'll put all these fun little things in the show notes too. There's some fun facts for the Scream franchise. That was what really cemented him. Nightmare was in the mid 80s and it had been a minute, but Scream in 96 really took him to the next level. So good thing he didn't pass. I mean, Scream itself totally turned the head on the horror genre because it became like almost in a weird way a love letter to horror fans because you have the scene of just them explaining the rules of how kind of meta in the way that it's being self-aware as a horror film like these are the tropes that we do here's how we turn it a little bit on the head even though we have seen like for example Drew Barrymore being one of the biggest names and dying right away We've seen yeah. that before in Psycho, but yeah. I haven't seen that in a very long time. Yeah. So for that to happen and with such a big star, that was huge. And then, but then you have the whole scene, I believe it's uh, Jamie Kennedy, his character, who's explaining the rules of like how. Yeah, you know, how it works. And so <laughs> many people scene. talk about that where he's just like, it's oh, so yeah, funny. like the, yeah. you know, you can't have sex. Otherwise, you'll die. You you'll can't die do right this. Right, otherwise, yeah. you'll die. <laughs> and did you know he had to make so many cuts to avoid an NC-17 rating? Like he had oh, to yeah. resubmit the film nine times to get it nine times. down. Yeah, they had to wow. cut down because of the final scene where Billy and Stu stab each other. They had yeah. to bring the intensity down. So sorry, spoiler, fascinating. Everyone, if you yeah, sorry seen guys, it. if you haven't seen it, but yeah, it, uh, yeah there's just, a scene where pe- uh, two characters are stabbing each other. We won't yes. explain context what's happening. <laughs> oh, and fun enough, David Arquette's character wasn't supposed to survive. But he was such a big hit with test audiences. And thank God, because that's where Courtney and him met Courtney Cox. But yeah, so he kept him on. So fun, fun fact about Scream. And that really cemented Wes. Um, so just by happenstance, you know, and they made four of them or how many of them? Five of them? No, well, now we're doing them, them. And it, I don't even think they have Nev Campbell in it anymore, which no. is mm, <laughs> uh, I take issue with that. Um, I agree with that. And I understand eventually you it's hard when you're doing franchises like this and trying to continue it, knowing that eventually, unfortunately, the characters are immortal, uh immortalized in film, but the actors sadly are not. So it's hard yeah to know you have a finite time with them in order to do different things. Like We've seen Jamie Lee Curtis come back and do all the Halloweens. We've had Robert England doing all the Nightmare on Elm Streets. And it's hard to imagine them without them and because they've yeah. become so synonymous with it. And like, that's the other thing, too, because I know we're getting close to 
the end of Wes's story as well yeah, as a director, even though he had a complicated history with not exactly embracing his role within horror films. He is synonymous with so many different films and things like that and with the genre, but unfortunately that has to eventually come to an end. Yeah, but I will say the movie, the original movie of Scream made $173 million. So good for Whoa. you, Wes. Glad that you did it and <laughs> stayed the course <laughs> because that was crazy. And yeah, it just all the sequels did well too. But the original was the highest grossing at 173 million in 96, which is crazy. So as we said, we're kind of nearing the end, but Wes was so excited. He finally got to do a non-horror film, which in, was came in 1999 and had a big effect on me, actually, Red. It's called Music of the Heart, and it's with Meryl Streep, and it's based on a true story of Roberta Giasperi, and she's a single mom <laughs> to two who teaches violin in East Harlem against the odds. And this was so, I didn't realize he directed it, but it had a huge effect on me because I had just started playing the violin and was kind of over it um and i watched this film and it kind of reinvigorated my love of it and even my Aww. like violin teacher saw it and was like what happened i was like oh I, I watched this film music of the heart and that was really what did it and he was so excited to finally do it and it's this really great film and he it was part of a three picture deal with the weinstein company merrimax films but he finally got to do what he's been trying to do this whole time so very exciting and he did some more films after that but in 2015 he Wes Craven died of a brain tumor in LA on August 30th he was 76 and he is actually buried in on the island of Martha's Vineyard Red so you should go no see him <laughs> go uh go pay him yeah tribute. I got about five weeks left I'll go say hi yeah. to us yeah oh, go say hi wow. to us go say hi to him yeah so what a legacy he was awarded a lifetime achievement award in 2012 at the New York City Horror Film Festival oh, wow. oh and he actually got a grand prize at some fancy Film Festival in 97 for Scream. Mm -hmm. He has multiple Saturn Awards, several film festival honors. Like the accolades just don't end. And the the legacy he has on the genre is just undeniable. And we, we miss him dearly. He really kind of just changed the genre, whether he liked it or not. Like the whole, you know, he, he was avoiding it the whole time. But and I just appreciate he was a late bloomer and he had the ups and downs that we are facing red. But that's really inspiring to me that he... You know, there was times he had to borrow money to pay his taxes. It's just crazy to me. Right. So it's just cool to know that somebody as big as Wes Craven is facing the hardships, too. And in his personal life, he, he had some ups and downs, too. And he finally found someone in 2004, late in life as well. So he found love late as well, which he would finally was somebody he worked on as a producer on his films. So Wes Craven, this is all to say. We love that for you. And this time of year especially is made special by you and your films. And I'm going to watch all the screams and all the nightmare on Elm Street reboots, even though I don't think anything's as good as the original. But <laughs> we're going to we're going to do it in your honor because you are so inspiring and fascinating. And I had no idea. And yeah, that's that's Wes Craven, everyone. Again, to have such a complicated, but at the same time, it's not that he's the only one. It sounds like he was actually and it wasn't even he had shame about the film itself. He had shame about the treatment he received after was yeah. uh, Last House on the Left, Last which House on the left. again was probably seen as like 
now we see it more as it's kind of revolutionary in the sense of handling such a heavy topic. And it's hard to watch even now because it is unfortunately still part of our culture and still something that we're dealing with in the aftermath and things like that. So it's heavy, but at the same time to start with something like that and then to have multiple successful franchises. Really interesting to see what a variety of different stories he told. Again, mainly in horror, but he also told other ones as well. And I think that also speaks to his previous life as a teacher going over English and studying right. like philosophy and stuff like that too. I did not know any of that. Right? I had no idea. I thought it was, like I said, out of the womb. But no, he was so late to this whole thing. The late bloomer, if there ever was one. But right. now he's just so synonymous that it's crazy to know this is the backstory behind him. From a terrible, strict upbringing to changing a whole genre. It's, it's just so impressive. Oh, and, and I'm sure so many uh, people I'm so inspired. feel like the, it resonated with them in some way, like whether it's the comedy or the, you know, just the self-awareness of films, the uh, there's so many things about that. There's a lot of what he did that helped define the whole horror community. And without yeah. him, I can't even imagine anyone else would be really... Obviously, he's willing to take the risks. And even if he's not entirely so sure himself, sometimes you just got to do it. And I want to end on a awesome quote from him is, Poor films don't create fear. They release it. Oh, <laughs> right. Isn't that one. so fun? That's such a good That's so point. true, though. Right. Too. Like, Ooh. I'm so he's such an intellectual. I got like chills like, on that one. <laughs> I know. I think that he's such an intellectual and he really treated the audience with respect and hated horror and gore just for the sake of it. Like the slasher movies, mm. of course, were a thing, but he really wanted to treat the audience with respect and intelligence. So, you know, he's got so many amazing quotes, but like he said, a lot of life is dealing with your curse, dealing with the cards you were given that aren't so nice. Does it make you into a monster or can you temper it in some way or accept it and go in some other direction? So tying it back to kind of earlier, Red, when we're talking about you're scared of what you're going to deal with next, what's coming mm-hmm. next, the cards you were dealt, is it going to make you a monster or are you going to temper it some way and accept it and just go on that journey? And I think you're going to thrive and Aww, you're going to, you. yeah, so we'll take some words of advice from Wes. Yeah. And I, I hope love everybody him. goes and enjoys even more of spooky season. I know by the time this episode comes out, we only have one more week and our Halloween episode will be coming out on Halloween. So we're really yes, excited about that. that one's going to be fun. So be like Kelly and get into as many different haunted <laughs> yes, car washes, car washes hay rides, hay rides, soirees. There's a haunted soiree we might go to. I mean, <laughs> Near it's just going to keep bar. growing. I'm waiting for like the laundromat, the fast food <laughs> restaurant, the grocery Ooh, store. There's got to pick- be one. There's got to be, gotta I'm be. sure. Let us if know. Not, okay, quick. We're we're, we're going to make this. it. We're going to start yeah. that right. That'll be our new business venture yeah. of, of I Love That For You Enterprises. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh. You heard it here first, folks. You heard it here first. Our trademark. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Please rate, review, and subscribe. For the love of God, help us. <laughs> we need yeah. the, the support. Come on. Get in good spirits. Haha. <laughs>
Thank you for joining us on I Love That For You. Our theme song is by Vaudeville and used with permission. Our cover art is by Jenny Lamb, edited to the best of our abilities by Kelly and Red. If you want us to spotlight someone, have questions, or just want to say hi, email us at ilovethatforyoupod at gmail.com or join us on Instagram at ilovethatforyoupod to join the love fest and see what else we get up to. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, basically wherever else you listen. We appreciate all your love, and if you want to help support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. This helps us spread the love and reach more people. Thanks for listening. We love you.